Hello, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we have conversations with leaders that are inspiring our world. Today, I'm here with a friend and a global leader at that. His name is Joshua Amponson, and I've known him for a while. He's at the helm of causing transformational change in the world of climate. And today, he's going to share a story with us. Welcome to the podcast, Joshua. Thank you very much. We're happy to be here. Great. So, I have known you since 20. 15, actually, the first time we met, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's quite some time ago. Yeah. Six years ago. Mm-hmm. No, 2015, 2016. Wow, yeah, time flies. <laughs> yeah. And when I met you, I think what you were working on at the time was Tunza Eco Generation yeah, Concept. So, so you gave me your card. It was a very tattered card, by the way. <laughs> it's a yeah. brown card. Yeah. With the Tunza Generation. Green. 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 I remember very well. Yeah. You were very slim. Still slim, though. <laughs> um, how did you get inspired to get into the work that was originally around environmental um, awareness? Yeah, so the, I mean, thanks and very good memory because I don't remember even I had a card back then. <laughs> so that's a good memory. Yeah, I mean, that was in 2015. I was, um, I was just graduating from uni, um, from my bachelor's. And I think the starting point for me was um, being a student of environmental science at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana, which is very it's situated on a coast. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful university, beautiful coast. But then you get pollution really across the city. Um, and you get sort of very knowledgeable, smart professors and lecturers who talk a lot about different things that could be done to reduce the pollution at the coast. But yet all of that stayed in the classroom. Right? So one of the questions I had at that time was asking one of the lecturers, uh, I remember clearly, I mean, why is, why is the city looking dirty when we stay in a classroom and talk a lot about all the potential solutions, right? And one of the things he said was, it is the role of the teacher to give knowledge to the student. It's the role of the student to decide what to do with that knowledge, right? So that was a very triggering point for, for me. And at that point, I thought, okay, then I need to do something with this. And at that point, the easiest thing I could think of and what my sort of, um, motivation drew me towards was we need to get to communities and share this knowledge t- together with them but also got into the community and realize that they know way more than i do um of course the scientific knowledge um, and theoretical knowledge still played a significant role and helped them to see things beyond this short time frame and all of that but it was really a point of understanding how culture how communities are shaped how that influence environmental protection how that is linked to livelihood and the role that the scientific community actually plays in all of this. You know, it's not really a thing of, oh, I know best and I tell you what to do. I read here that uh, if you do X, Y, Z, then you are polluted. No, it doesn't matter. At that point, no, that doesn't work. Communities have a reason why they do what they do. And understanding that and seeing the background of that helps to work together with them in shaping the new definition of what you think um, it's appropriate, but also what they think is much valuable to them. And that's how I got into, I got into this. But then I realized I needed help 
I realized that, I mean, as a student, uh, this was back in 2013, uh, I needed help. And then in 2014, I was looking online, uh, you know, trying to understand, okay, where could I get help from? I came across um, United Nations Environmental Program and Samsung Engineering had this Tunes Echo Generation platform where young people, I think, uh, below the age of, I don't know, 22 or something or 23 could uh, uh, sort of apply to be an ambassador and then they receive mentoring, they receive uh, sort of guidance and they are also sort of giving tasks they have to deliver sort of every week, every month. So I got myself into that space and I realized that, yeah, it, it was a very good, it was very good for me. I took inspiration from other people who were way younger than I was, uh, but doing amazing things in their community. But that was only possible because they had this platform which shaped the whole thing for them. You know, it tells you, okay, this month, the theme is on conservation and you need to do one article about conservation in your local community, right? So it pushes you to look locally what is conservation is and what is important and you report on it. So that was a good starting point, opening, opening me up to sort of different young people around the world doing amazing things and realizing that, I mean, no, you must be very crazy in your head if you think that uh, doing something in your, in your village or your city, you are the big guy or you are, you are doing amazing, you are really not. I mean, I've come across really young people doing fantastic work at its highest professional level. You know why? Because they got themselves into the right space, they got the right mentorship and guidance, and they build themselves robustly at a very early age. Yes. So I took inspiration from that and I decided, okay, I'm going to keep pressing, I'm going to keep developing my skills in this, and I'll keep doing this, um, and wherever it takes me, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. You know, I want to zoom in on wherever it takes you because you didn't particularly know that it was going to take you here. Yeah. And especially you doing environmental science. That's what something aspiration a young Ghanaian in the university wants to do. <laughs> right. Let's talk about that. And let's talk about the context of having to do environmental science at a university. Not something very inspiring. Not something that people think that you can make anything out of. It's one of those courses that you do just because you have to do them. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. That is our perception of it at least. And not knowing the value that it has to actually create what you've been able to create in that. Also, let's talk about the fact that you didn't have the mentorship. And talk about you didn't come from that family that had the guidance or you didn't have any kind of thing to look back on. So truly then, why did you even bother? No, the, the, the thing is, I mean, I'm going to tell you something that I probably haven't told a lot of people. When I finished my uh, higher, high school education, I wanted to go into nursing. Why? Because when you go to nursing, the government pays all your fees. You get an allowance. I mean, life is good, right? I mean, let's let's be honest here. I came from a family where I wasn't sure if my parents would be able to to pay the fees for university. So I had two options: nursing or teaching. Because there, the government pays everything for you. So I applied for a nursing, three nursing schools, and I got rejected in all three. So I had to stay home for one year. And believe me, you, if you stay in a community with a lot of young people who completed high school at the same time and the next year they all go to school and you are the one left behind it's trauma I like it's, I it's, it's a mess <laughs> i mean all this all these people are asking you hey uh, joe and uh, what one call hey, hey, are you still home or didn't you go to school uh, but i saw ernest is going what are you doing here did you, uh, why you didn't apply for the phone all, all sort of thing you know they make up their own assumptions <laughs> because make all sort of things up. So, I mean, that was already very stressful. And indeed, I must be honest, I had two, I, I was going to apply for two things, fisheries and aquatic science and environmental science. Why I didn't have 
any clue. It was just like, look, I need to look at my grades and see what course I can fit in. And this is the honest truth. I had no intention of anything of this sort of getting into it like this. But two options, fisheries and aquatic science, environmental science, UCC, the great combination with my grades were like a perfect fit. I was like, okay, maybe I'm just going to take one of those two. First comment from my, from my mom, fisheries and aquatic, what are you going to do? Then my sister commented, will you be a fisherman? <laughs> okay. You know, like, like, all right, all right. I mean, case closed, right? And now at that time, I, I read online, I was trying to explain to them, well, I mean, the prospects are quite good. I mean, um, if you look at the oil and gas, and if you look at this, you, know, you need to do all this quality assessment, you need to monitor, you need to think about sort of um, uh, coastal conservation and other things. And they're like, coastal conservation where? <laughs> In Ghana. This is not NAGEO, or this is not a, <laughs> there's no na na National Geographic uh, Association in Ghana for you to think about going into, forget about it, you know, it's just like, really they kicked it out. And then I talked to the environmental science, and then my mom again, like, okay, into an overheading, what will you do? And then I was thinking about, oh, at least, I mean, for environmental science, uh, the mining companies always have to hire an environmental science person to do their, uh, water quality test and the soil test and I mean, it's quite a good uh, and they, they pay them very well first comment again afterwards how many mining companies are in Ghana then she already starting to list the ones you know how many environmental uh, people do they hire per company <laughs> and then the next comment was in the whole Ghana now course that's a company if they all have the environmental officers already what are you going to do you know and then I was like, yeah, but then these are the options and I, I need to get into it. Then, uh, I mean, luckily for me, my father in his early years um, worked as a water in a water company, uh, Ghana Water Works, and also worked in a mining company. And it's like, oh, I remember when I was in mining, those people, hey, they come from school, or they come back and they, they say their officer, they take their lab, they go and take some food, they come back. They, so maybe he's lucky and afterwards he gets something. So we should, uh, we should allow him, you know. So I got into it like this, and this is the reality. It's not like I, none of my family, um, the whole extended family, no one had actually been to university to even sort of give me the understanding of what that is, right? The first time I heard um, the, this very common thing, uh, I know now it's not, a, it's not so much the case, but I remember back in, when I was in this phase of high school to university, right? And then the, uh, one person said, oh, you have to you have to be a doctor. The only definition for a doctor to me was a medical doctor, right? I never knew that there was something called a doctor, and then there's a PhD, and there's a, this this layers of education. No, so I came from really from that background in terms of education of not knowing any of these things and looking for just a course to do that much with my grade, right? But then I got into it, and then I mean, spent the first one year level hundred, part of level two hundred, just I mean, just a normal student, you know, doing my course and waiting to finish and. But then again, that element of having a lot of our professors and lecturers standing in front of students and projecting like they are the smartest people on the planet. They know how to solve all the problems you have in Ghana, but it all is in the four corners of the classroom. That was what was the trigger point for me. It just showed me, I mean, the redundancy in the education system that we have in Ghana, but also in different parts of the world. That you go to school, you just dump a lot of information on you. You consume all of that, and at the end of the day, you still don't know what next for you, right? So that was it. And then with that, I was able to transition into into this phase. So really, that was uh, that was just the background of it. It wasn't like I I, I knew I was gonna. I had so much interest in 
environmental issues or climate change or anything. I mean, I also had had climate change the first time. Um, you went to university? Yeah, exactly. I never knew what it was. <laughs> you know, I, I heard about it. I was like, oh, that sounds scary. You know, and then I, I, I got myself into it. Yeah. So just in a matter of what? Seven years or eight years, everything changed. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your foundation, right? Gaio. It started in the university yeah. phases when you were doing all of this. What do you think that at that time the aim was? Because I know it has had a lot of evolutions. What at the time was the aim? And what evolutions has it gone through? And I want you to more specifically talk about what you thought was the kicker that brought you to the global limelight that you have right experience right now. Yeah, so, I mean, Gaio was supposed to be a student initiative. Sort of, uh, it's very common in many universities you have student clubs. Right, one year goes, they pass it over to another group, then the other group do it, and then they pass it over. It's supposed to be something like this. So we started like that. We organized a couple of um, activities in Cape Coast, talking to fishermen, the women who are smoking the fish, on environmental safety, protection, health, conservation, climate change. And then at some point, uh, I realized that climate change itself, it's, it's a jargon to a certain extent to the average Ghanaian. So it didn't make sense to go to a community and talk to them about climate change, but rather make sense to go to them and talk about what is really immediate, really next to them, which in many parts was waste management. It was visible, they could see it, right? It still contributes to their vulnerability to climate. It still contributes to emissions uh, to climate. But if you take it from the climate angle, you lose everybody, right? So that was the challenge. And then after, I think somewhere in the, in the third year, no, in my third year to the fourth year, I also realized that passing on from one student club to another, there are already many existing student clubs. So why create another one, which is going to be another thing, right? Which is going to, there's competition and nothing else existing. So we thought, okay, we're going to move it forward to make it an NGO, said that we can keep doing this when we are done with school. Because I, at that point, realized that, okay, this is something I really want to do, and I don't want to just sort of leave it behind and just walk away and look for a job or something else. So I really wanted to keep that momentum. So we registered as an NGO. And the moment we registered as an NGO and we're done with school, just around that interface, we're done with school. So school is over. The group I started with, everyone goes home. Right, I go home too. You need to find a job. So national service comes in. People started working at national service level. It was difficult to keep anything moving because you have your full-time national service, and on their side, everyone is doing something that brings money. So it's really, it was a huge responsibility of holding the fort. And then in the village where I did my national service, I started activities. Where did you do your national service? I did my national service at New Edibiasi, in the Adansa South District. And this is also where Gayo has one of its fundamental waste management projects. Why? I was there for one year as a national service personnel. And I told the waste management office, we got to do something about waste management here. It cannot be the way it is now. Right, ah, but you have to wait for government, and then the the money is not coming. They do not disperse the money in time. You are always in areas, compounding effects. Right, so I started with school education, going to communities, talking to them, and then the next point was okay, we're going to use children as leaders of change, educate them, put them on the radio, and they tell their parents you cannot dispose your waste in the gutters, you cannot throw your waste in the in the rivers. If you hear your kid telling you what you're doing wrong, it has an impact on you. Right, that's very important. So we started with that, and then also realizing at that point the value of indigenous knowledge, right? Why do people throw things on the floor all the time? Because they have lived, I mean, if you go to villages where people are pretty old, they've lived most of their life leaving everything on the floor. 
a cat will take it, a dog will take it, a bird will take it, it will rot and go away. There were just so much organic materials at that point where leaving things on the floor was not a problem. You chew a corn, you throw a cob on the floor, right? You eat a banana, you throw the thing over on the floor, right? and a goat will come and chew it. Like So there was not that problem of littering per se, because everything that just dropped, livestock and just something will take care of it, and animals will take care of it. And then now it's a different era. So much inorganic waste, so much plastic waste. But the whole thinking of that has, you just leave that for a long time. So you just keep dropping things anyhow, right? So getting people to understand the composition of the materials that they are dealing with and how that affects the soil, that affects their livelihood, the water, they drink, everything became important. And we started working from that angle. But then in return, they're also telling me as the, as the person going to the community, also the value of certain crops, certain herbs, that also they feel like they are no more as fruitful anymore, that generates a common interest, right? I'm telling, oh, the chemical composition of this waste and this kind of waste here causes eutrophication of the river, of the, of the water and the lake, and then it becomes a problem because then it doesn't have fish anymore and all the ecosystem around it gets affected. Oh, by the way, we used to have these herbs over here. Now we, it's, the, the, the distribution is limited. The quantity is limited. Could that be? And then we have a common conversation, right? But then I learned so much of, about just these herbs and the value of those herbs and what it does and like sort of planting for herbal purposes, not just for, for sort of crops as food, but also different. And that really piqued my interest in all of this. So then what happened was, of course, we did a lot of work around water conservation, even the rehabilitation of some mangrove areas. And I was doing a lot of posting some of the work I do here and there. And just at the moment when I gave up on activism, I'm going to tell you why. I did my national service in 2015 to 2016, right? In 2016, I volunteered with challenges, which you know. I still didn't get a job. One year, six months, still no job, right? I was stressed, there's family pressure, I need to make money. And I'm doing everything I can with the NGO. And when I apply for the most minimum funding opportunity or even like a speaking opportunity somewhere, I don't get selected. Now, I was applying for different things, no? Because I knew, I mean, I need to get this story out there. I'm doing a great stuff. Everyone tells me I'm doing great. Someone needs to hear it, but I need a platform. I applied and applied and applied and applied. Nothing worked out. At some point, after, after there's an event we used to organize called Power Shift. After 2016 Power Shift, I told Gideon and Jamal, good friends of mine, mentors of mine, I told them, guys, you know, if I don't get any breakthrough at this point, I'm done with activism. I'm going to find myself a job and that is it. I just can't take it forward. And just that same period, I think just the next week or something, I got an invitation for the climate conference that was happening in Morocco in 2016. Just that, just the following week, I went back to the village. I got an email. You are invited to this conference in Morocco, fully funded. You're going to be there for this and this reason. And you're going to support us to talk about indigenous knowledge, climate change and communities. I was like, nah, this is a joke. No, I just left the email because for the past two years, I've been applying to attend this conference and I never got even like, we regret to inform you. We regret to inform you. Very nice application, but we regret to inform you that. So in my head, it's like, it cannot just come without me applying, right? So this email came, I made it rest for like a week even. And then there was a secondary email on top of that. We would really appreciate if you could respond by this date. And if you have any questions, please let us know. And that was then, you know, so I responded to that email. Everything was sorted. I was going to be there. 
the UNFCCC, the UN Climate Change Secretariat, was setting up the first time the local um, peoples and in local people and indigenous um, platform, and they were doing this in Marrakesh and Morocco at COP22. And then there was a group in the US who wanted me on their delegation for this. So that was brilliant. What was more surprising was that afterwards, and I got this invitation, I thought, great. There was a delegation from Morocco traveling across Africa to see youth engagement on climate change and everything. When they were in Ghana, they invited me and they provided another fully funded slot for me to be in Morocco for the same climate event, which I already had an invitation for, right? So quickly, I got one of my team members on board. So I put us, hey, I'm, 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 I'm now very busy and occupied and that, but my colleague will be very happy to, to be there, right? So then my colleague took the opportunity, fully funded, boom. So another person in the team motivated, we're making progress, right? And then there was a third invitation from another group in Europe, just Rampelsen, we want you to be in Marrakesh for the climate conference. So at this moment, you just realized that the past two years has been a struggle. Nothing seems to work. You're frustrated. Then all of a sudden, boom. It's a bombardment of opportunities. You know, it just came through, right? I mean, it now, I mean, I, if I look back, like yeah, getting a funded, fully funded trip to go talk somewhere, it's not a big thing. But at that point, believe me, you, that was it. I needed that confirmation that we are doing great. This story is important. The work we are doing is meaningful and people need to hear these stories. And our experience, that was the most important part. Our experience working in local communities, that was something worth sharing. So all of a sudden, we got two of our guys in Marrakesh for the climate conference. I mean, it was not, it was chaotic. You know, it was a lot of people speaking French. It was our first big conference. You don't know where to say, who to talk to. You do your session and afterwards you are just like, it's chaotic. These conferences are huge and big and whatever. But then at that point, I saw again other young people who were there, right? Playing roles that I saw and I was like, huh. I mean, this is good, right? I just look at myself and I know the role I am playing, they're supporting this delegation. But I saw other young people who were on a much, much dealing with much bigger issues, no, like not just the small community there, but really much bigger issues. So I told myself, yeah, I mean, there's more work to be done, right? And most of these people were from the West, you know, Europeans, Americans, I mean, then I told myself, okay, more needs to be done, right? I need, I'm going to come back. I'm going to focus on this organization. I'm going to build it solid enough. We need more young people from Ghana, right? From Africa, engaging at that level, not because someone funded them to be there, right? But because they earned it. Right? Not because they applied like I was applying for two years. Because applying means you're desperate. I mean, let's be honest. You apply, you apply, you are desperate. You just want... No. You need to work. You need to gain the recognition. They have to come to you. Right? Kojo, you're doing this. You are the guy for it. We want you here. And we want you to come. This was the new narrative for me. Right? Before the narrative was, oh, I'm doing good. I need to apply, apply for this. I need to apply for that. No. At that point, everything changed. It was like, no. They come to me, I need to stay consistent, I need to deliver, I need to stay focused, and they will come. So that was it, really. And then I came back and I was like, okay, this is it, I'm gonna focus on. And at that time, I was still on the challenges cohort when I went to Morocco, I came back. Um, and then I was like, you know what, after this, no. Yeah, I find a job, I get it. If I don't get it, we're still gonna work on the, on the NGO and make it work. And that has been it, really, like, very motivated, drawing inspiration from seeing other people who are really high up the ladder knowing the kind of problems they are dealing with, the kind of issues they are dealing with, but also realizing that the experiences I have made and other young people in Ghana are making, their experiences will make way more value if they were in that position. 
but someone needs to work them to get them in that position. And that was really became the foundation of Guyana. If you look at Guyana, the whole point is working with young people. We train as much as possible to hire no one who is above the age of 10. We train as much as possible to keep the team as young as possible, right? Put the trust in them that they do not need uh, an old guy supervising them. They do not need like uh, some big boss ordering them around. Putting the trust in them, providing the guidance, the mentorship to develop them professionally and personally, and making sure they build a profile for themselves, right? And investing in them, not just from the work perspective, but also investing in them in terms of providing opportunities for them to engage externally. And this is the whole thing. And every anytime we have a, a project where we hire a new person, for me, that is that I get so happy because, again, one more person on board. And when I look at when I started, and all the environmental organizations, uh, sort of youth-focused environmental organizations in the country, youth-led, I mean, not a single organization I knew had the capacity to hire someone for full time and pay well. You could hire, but you couldn't pay well, right? You could hire and give the person some, but you couldn't pay well. And that was something I always thought, I mean, if that opportunity was there, I would have probably had a good start, right? If those organizations existed that could hire people, pay them well, and provide them that safe space to really function, it would have been fantastic. So Gaio is becoming that, creating that space where people could come in from their bachelors, they don't need five years of working experience. That is ridiculous. I mean, how, you, how are they going to get that, right? We're creating that space. You come in. We trust you. We provide a guidance. You make mistakes. That is okay. We are a young organization. We can afford mistakes. That is fine. But after some, after some time with the guidance and mentorship, you pick up. You are highly motivated. You deliver. You get opportunities. You advance, right? And this is really, the environmental part is very important. And we, we keep working on the environmental part. But then the other part is the youth engagement element, which young people here, not all smart or brilliant, but they need that space to, to feel confident that I can function here and mistakes are okay. Right? And if I make mistakes, there's someone there to guide me and I can pick it up from there and not feel so tense and so straight with a low salary, family pressure, work pressure, whatever, and not know where they are, what, what comes next. And everyone in this organization, you can talk to anybody, feels like, you know, there is growth for themselves. Because today you came in as a student, the next week you are coordinating the project, the next week you're speaking at an international conference, the next time you are there, you are there, you are there, you feel like you are developing. And I think that is what every young person really needs, you know, to have that feeling of progress in life and contributing to something bigger than what you even imagine. And I never thought guy would be like this on him. So congratulations on that. on giving people the opportunity to progress, I mean, in just the past few months, some of your um, co-founders, people in your staff have been getting global opportunities. Can you just highlight some of the things that, through the organization, the young people in Ghana and across Africa have gotten exposure to international boards and platforms? Yeah, I mean, let's start with the, 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 the most recent one. So, um, my co-founder Desmond uh, has been selected on the Youth Advisory Panel to the Global Center on Adaptation. Fantastic opportunity. Which you are a fellow too. Yeah, which I'm a fellow of the center, of course, um, and I, and I work with the center for the past uh, for the past one and one and a half years or so. You know, so I mean that's a brilliant opportunity. Betty, our project coordinator, has been a speaker at the Youth Adaptation Dialogues organized by the center as well. Has been a speaker at the Breakthrough from Plastic uh, uh, Movement Workshop. Again, uh, my colleague Desmond um, is now the program support coordinator 
for Gaia Africa. And I mean, that is big because Gaia Africa is an organization headquartered in the US, right, supporting multiple projects in Africa. And through Gaia, we have one of our staff coordinating the whole network in Africa. That is big. That is, that is important to me. So very excited about that. We have our research officer currently in Munich for his PhD. That is brilliant, right? We, three things that I need to mention. Most of the people who come through Gaio from their bachelor's break in Gaio, fully funded scholarship. You know, after some few years, fully funded scholarship, they go, they do their studies. No, this is it. You need that. You need that extracurriculum activities that people ask, but you need something tangible. And having the organization as a reference point is tangible, right? Have another colleague who is currently going to pick up a consultancy with UNDP in Kenya. And uh, no, with UNDRR in Kenya, right, on disaster risk reduction. Brilliant opportunities. So these are some of the things that I, I think there are many more I could I could talk about, but these are some of the opportunities. And I find this important because having a young person here in Ghana working in Ghana, being able to share those perspectives at the global level, right, in that environment, it inspires. Right? I get a lot of people sending me messages, oh, keep inspiring us, keep inspiring this, keep... But then I feel like, yeah, we need multiple people doing this, right? We need more people doing this. And we don't want the inspiration to be only when someone does something crazy fancy, right? But just seeing, like I said, when I got to, when I got to the Tunza platform and I saw oh, there's a 20 year old in Bangladesh who is doing fantastic work, I'm like, wow, I could be doing more, right? That is an inspiration. So having Betty speak at the Breakthrough from Plastic Movement webinar, speak at the Global Center on Adaptations webinar, that is inspiration for many other people. Like they can do it, right? They need to get themselves in the right network in the right space to be able to do that. So these are some of the opportunities, and I mean they will keep coming. I, I had um, Abraham who joined our team a couple of months ago, speaking at Irena, the International Renewable Energy Agency, speaking at their youth forum last week, right? We had Michael, who is our climate um, lead, talking at the UNFCCC's, that was the UN Climate Change Secretary's regional hub uh, in Africa, speaking at their event last week. These are fantastic opportunities, right? A, because for that, for the young person speaking there, this is progress, this is growth, you get more insight, you get to share your knowledge, you get questions asked back to you, helps you to reflect on what you are doing and how you can improve. But then the exposure is also very important, which sticks with you, you know, it's not for the organization. It is you there as Abraham, individual. Exactly. So even if you leave, that is part of your identity, you know. I've done this before, I've done that before. And this is what I find very important and what I like about the uh, guy and how we operate, that we keep it very young, we keep it very easy, that people can really come in, assume a role, and make it their role, right, and move ahead with it. Yeah. And this is all done by Joshua Ampersen, who is how old? <laughs> nah, let's not get into that. Come on, it's not it's not all done by me because I need to say this. No, yeah, definitely, definitely. I just wanted to rehash that this is done by a youth in Ghana, and the youth is. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. No, but I mean, this is um, I, I I say that you you have to be very hungry. Right? You have to be very hungry, but you also need this this concept um, of relational capital to to be very hungry to a certain extent. And that is to say that I'm not always going to be youth. Right? I'm 30 years now. I'm not going to be youth all the time. Right? At some point, someone needs to take over. Right? At some point, I would need to consult with you to understand how they think. Right? The only way to do that is to make sure that you're working with multiple people who get the vision, who get the understanding, and who think like you. 
So later on, you can work together with them when you are no more in this in this space, right? We're gonna keep the team young, and I'm very keen on that because that is very important. I, I consider myself youth, but I'm not really youth anymore. I mean, I, I'm not active on TikTok, right? I mean, that is already an indication. As cynical as it my son, but there are a lot of things that happen on that platform which I have no idea. If you bring a 15-year-old into this room and tell the person, okay, how do we get people to dress this particular way? Maybe the first idea is, oh, we need to do an Instagram story and a TikTok. If you ask me, I'll tell you, oh, we need to write a blog post. Who the fuck reads a blog post that mean? People don't do that anymore. Young people don't spend their time reading long things. They just watch a lot of stuff. They spend a lot of time on it. It's not. In our definition, in our world, it's not the best thing for people to spend their time on, but that's what they're doing. So at any point in time, I feel like we need to work with people from different generations and acknowledge that we cannot think the way they think. You know, I cannot think the way a 40-year, 50-year-old think now. Their problems are not the same as my problems. I cannot think the way 15-year-old think now because they think very differently. So we're going to keep it that way. Building a team that sees it that way is very important, right? I got that we, we, we implementing a project called the Youth Climate Council, right? I'm very happy about this project. Why? And I'm going to tell you. We're going to make sure that there is a way for young people in Ghana to get access to influence climate policy, right? But we're going to make sure that everyone have the capacity to do so, not only organizations based in Accra who are closer to the ministry and can easily go over. So we're going to build a council that will make sure that the young person Right at Kandiga, up in Upper East, right close to the border in Burkina, when there is going to be a climate policy on adaptation, right? We have a team that will consult with everybody, open channel, bring all of that together into a concrete recommendation, and deliver it to the doorstep of the ministry. Everyone needs to feel involved, right? How are we going to do this? We're going to pay people to do this full-time job. Your job: consult, consolidate, deliver. This is very important, right? Things like this, I feel getting people to think from this perspective of it's not one organization and doing good things, it's not enough. The problems are too big for any one organization to solve, believe me. The problems we have in this country, they are huge. If you look at waste management, and no one, not all the organizations in Ghana combined working on waste management, we cannot solve this problem. We need more people to come in and think differently from the way we are thinking to make it work. So, this is the, the idea of the Youth Climate Council. Consolidate views, make it possible for everybody, regardless of where they are, a farmer, a truck pusher, whatever, you know, as long as the sun is hitting you and you feel, you no, know, something needs to be done, we need green spaces, you get a phone number that you can call, I am this person, I live in this place, I know that there's going to be a new um, a review of the national adaptation plans, and this is my input. I think at this point, we need to really consider green spaces in the city. It gets documented. Someone is responsible for documenting all of that, consolidating, delivering to the ministry. This is very important. What is amazing is that working with the project and also young people on this has also opened us up to a lot of opportunities. Why? Because they are doing things I cannot do. Right? They are much younger. They are, their form of activism is different from when I started activism. Right? They think very differently. So working with them, very youthful, they've approached different, uh, the, the projects in different ways that I wouldn't be able to approach. Right? When they think about, say, an event, they think of it different from how we used to organize power, power shift. Right? They want to make it beautiful. But it's not just about the content. 
is about the ambience also. But for me, it's like, who, who cares about ambience? Let's focus on the topic. No, we need to focus on the topic. But they come in like, no. Right? We need the television there. We need five screens on the wall. We need to project this. We need to show that video. We need to put it in that context. If you were talking to me, I would tell you, we need the people in the room and they need their pen and their paper. <laughs> and then we need someone to do a killer presentation that gives them the context. But no, they are thinking differently. And they are thinking how to get a message to the target group much better than I am doing it. And this is what I mean by I'm not doing this alone. Because if I was doing it alone, it would be an old school fashion. But bringing in new people, young, energetic, to come work within is very important. And that is one of the conversations. If I was to take three key things, right, from everything you said, I think the first thing is that it's important that no matter where you get to, you just be able to make lemon, uh, lemonade out of, out of the lemons you are giving. Because you were just literally pushed to what at the point seemed like um, a place that you could go nowhere from. And then you just decided that putting yourself into the circumstances that you were giving, you asked the questions that normal people couldn't ask. Right? Like the normal person in the classroom is not asking, how are these lecturers giving us all this knowledge? But then around us, we have a compendium of problems that we cannot solve. Yeah. So something has to be done with the knowledge. But then the second thing I've learned is that you being what I guess I would call the climate foot soldier on the ground and learning not only from what you know and like trying to just put it on the people like that's what usually you know we do um people who are activists people who are educators scientists they feel like they have the knowledge they're just going to impinge it on the community but being a close collaborator with the community yeah. and allowing them to give as much as you are giving. I think that's the second thing that I've learned. And then the third thing I've learned is that it's important that no matter where you get to, knowing that you will not be there oh, yeah. forever, you get to dissipate that opportunity and give the growing platform for people. I think that what you're doing is definitely amazing. Um, can you tell us about some of the programs, especially zooming in on, say, power shares mm -hmm. that maybe not so much important, but like, those were your early beginnings, yeah. but also your NWSA project, which is like the penultimate program that you guys have done, that you guys are known for. But it's also very interesting to say that you just spent one year of your national service, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very key thing for young people to know that national service is time that we pass away. Oh, it's very important period of your right? life. It's a very important period of your life because I was in this community for one year for national service, right? The whole one year I built the right relationships. I knew the waste management problem was there. I even wrote uh, a liquid waste management plan for them, which won an award, but they had no money to implement. So when I was done with national service, I told myself, no, I'm not going to leave. I mean, they wanted me to stay and work with the assembly. Of course, not on a government contract on just be there and they give you something. And I said, no, I'm going to channel that time to doing a project here with the community, with the schools, right? And I didn't need so much money for that, right? It's a rural area, and this goes to a lot of national service personnel who work in rural areas. You have the biggest opportunity. They don't know. Your living cost is really low, so you could do a lot with very little money, but for yourself, for development's sake, for yourself. So I was there working together with this community, with the people, the students, educating them, doing radio programs, talking here and there, and at some point, Channel it into a new phase of the project where we got a space. We got literally a land. 
when we tried sort of a school farm, right? So we tried a school farm at composting at a school, and then the idea came, I mean, we could also do it at a community level. Why do it in a school alone, right? So we made it at a community level, which means we need to collect more waste, not just the waste that comes to the school. And then we started this circular economy project, and then we made it community-led. So community-led circular economy project. People have to get the organic waste to us in a particular way. We collect it, we take it to this site, which we call a material recovery facility. At this site, the waste get processed into compost fertilizer, which is used for farming. All plastic waste, all this water sachets and the sachet from the milo and the washing powder and the beverages, whatever, all of them get into this site, also segregated, and they use it to make these curtains, which you see here. They used it to make uh, sort of a shower curtains, um, raincoats, other products that can be used locally. The hard plastic, the, the gallons and other things, we sell it to the recyclers. And this was the beginning, right? And now if you go to the place, they've gotten themselves, I think, about three acres of land, right? Doing sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture, using compost, organic waste from the market, converting it into compost and doing this uh, farming over there. So they get organic product out of that with the cancer, but also very healthy and nutritious, nutritious for the community. And they are taking waste out of the city. So it was really small. We got it into like a, quite a big project now, hiring about, I think give or take about six, seven people on the site who are doing on, who are working on this every day, right? Producing compost fertilizers, producing this, um, uh, recycled, upcycled pro products and selling it. The next thing is, how do we take this to other places, right? So now we started in Kumasi at the, uh, Achumanwa Bieja around the Buakwa. We're doing the same there. In Cape Coast, we're working with God. This is where I did my studies in the university. We have good contacts there. Now we are doing the same there. We're working with the waste workers there, the informal waste workers and waste pickers, mobilizing them, supporting them so that they can well organize. And then they can support the municipality and the metropolitan in managing waste. In Accra, we are doing the Zero Waste Accra project. Now this is big, right? Because what this means is that we're working with um, LADMA, which is the Lada de Cotopon around the trade fair area. We're working with them to bring all stakeholders together. We had a meeting last week, all stakeholders together, everybody who works on waste, all in one room. What are the issues? How do we fill those gaps? We've done that. We are providing resources to the assembly in a way that they have someone dedicated specifically to supporting the informal economy and the informal waste work workers to better support the assembly in their collection effort. Next phase, we did a site inspection. We're going to develop a material recovery facility, more or less like a waste processing center in the city of Accra. The goal is that we're going to have a zero waste strategy by the end of this year. Hopefully, we're going to launch it by the World Cities Day uh, on 31st October. But we're going to have a zero waste strategy done in Accra for the for the city for the for the Latma area. We're going to work together with them throughout 2022 to build an infrastructure where the city, the waste in that city, goes to this place and they do not stay there as waste. They get in there, they come out as useful products. We're gonna do urban gardening with the compost from there. We're gonna do urban greening. We're gonna do recycling, shredding, molding, producing new products at this site. How are we gonna do that? Bringing everybody in one room, right? So this is really something I'm excited about because it's happening in Accra, and Accra has a huge waste management challenge. Working together hand in hand with the assembly, together with all the private sector companies working on waste, with the informal the women who go around uh, picking waste, the taxi, boiler taxi and tricycle operators, all these guys coming together. We need to fix this problem. If we get it fixed, 
we could replicate it in different areas. And this is something we started this year. At the end of this year, we've done with the first phase. We have the strategy done. We've gotten everyone in the room. We've secured commitment. Next year, we get the infrastructure rolled out, and then we start moving. So these are some of the projects. In addition to the Youth Climate Council, which we started now, which on September 23rd, yeah, September 23rd, we're going to have the local conference on youth on climate change, which we're partnering with UNICEF, UK in Ghana, the Canadian Air Commission in Ghana, the GIZ, and among other youth organizations, bringing 50 young people from across the country, not only those who are in Accra, wherever you are, we bring you here, your expenses are covered. We think together with you, how do we get young people in this country to be able to influence climate policy? Right, and then get three paid positions who are specifically throughout the whole of 2022 working together with all young people to make sure that their inputs are tailored, well prepared, and can feed into any review process at the ministry. So this is also very exciting for us that we're able to, to put something like this together and be able to get people not feel the anxiety of, I don't know what to do, and I'm not the government, and I cannot change anything, I cannot influence anything. This is the general feeling. We want to make sure that people feel there is a window and know that there is a place they could go with their concerns and it gets on paper, gets documented, and we feedback to them. As part of that, we'll be holding capacity building programs for all any youth-led organization working on climate and environment. That is my sort of vision and responsibility. I feel like it cannot just be one organization doing good. We need every organization to be on top of the agenda. That means they need skills in terms of how do they communicate, they need skills in proposal writing, they need skills in pitching the idea, they need skills in program, they need skills in participatory project development. Who is going to take care of that? No one, right? So the whole of 2022, this council will make sure that every youth-led organization working on climate get access to capacity building on how to program the activities, where to get money from, how to get the resources, how to do their reporting, how to structure even how to develop the organization itself, contracting, tax. These are all difficult things that people need to figure out, you know. So we're going to dedicate resources to that and make sure that we're providing these services to youth organizations so that we can have multiple organizations in Ghana doing amazing stuff. Yeah. So what I like about your perspective is that you are taking a very microscopic view at the climate issue. That is what is being done on the grounds by people who are carrying small waste um, uh, materials, by children, by these things, right? But let's get let's get into the bigger issues now because we have COP twenty-six coming up. Exactly. Right? What is the aim of this year's COP twenty-six, right? And as a youth, how do we get involved in the conversation through organizations like Gario? Yeah, so for COP26, I mean, I think there are three things I should mention which are on top of the agenda. I mean, from my perspective and also uh, from the perspective of the work I do, the first thing which I think very important on top of the COP agenda is finance, right? We need money. We need money, particularly there is a commitment for developed countries, so-called developed countries, the richer countries who are polluted more, to commit $100 billion each year, right, to support climate action by other countries. And this money has not been delivered. The ones which have been delivered, and this leads me to the second point. So one, we need the money. So the money has to come in. The money which is already there has shown that there is not enough money going into 
adaptation and resilience, but rather to reduce our carbon emissions, which is not a narrative for countries that are most vulnerable. You are too vulnerable, you, you don't pollute much. What you need is to build your resilience against climate risk. So, on top of the agenda for COP26, we need at least the funding to come in, and we need 50% of that funding going to adaptation and resilience. So that is very important. And then the third part is to make sure that there is not uh, new investment going into fossil fuels, no new coal power, power, power plants, because if we make the investment into building resilience and finance climate action, and at the same time we invest in polluting more, it doesn't make any sense, right? So for me, these are my top three sort of uh, top three things um, which are important for the conversation, uh, for the work we do, and for 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 many of us, I think. What is also very important is that from the African perspective, we need to see what is really important to us. And that is really for us to build resilience. Right? We really need to make sure that when the heat waves are coming with increasing temperatures, we need to think about that. We need to think flooding is going to get worse every year. It's going to happen. The drought is going to intensify. Right? How are we going to live with this? We do not have the infrastructure per se. So this is where we need to worry about the most. We need to reduce our emissions whenever we can. But if there should be the same room for here, the same room for somewhere else, we are doomed. They are not because they have the resilience, they have the structures. So this is how we need to start thinking and really advocate a lot for uh, adaptation, adaptation and resilience that the financing is there for that to happen. And for me, this is, this is my sort of, um, my hope and my advocacy towards COP26. So, for someone who doesn't know what COP26 is, actually, if you can talk about the COPs in general yeah. and how you, for example, other young leaders in the world are contributing to making that conversation possible and getting those resolutions passed. Yeah, so the, the, I mean, the UN Climate Change Secretariat every year um, since 1992, it's time to be corrected, holds an annual conference uh, on climate change. What this does is that it brings the countries together, we call them parties, it brings them together and they have negotiators. What they are doing is to negotiate on agreement on how we're going to reduce our emissions and how we're going to protect livelihoods from the impact of climate change and make sure we fix this crisis. But this is the 26th meeting, right? So it means that they've met 26 times or 25 times and we are still where we are, right? In 2015, we had a breakthrough with the Paris Agreement that was great for everybody, but that has to be implemented. That has to be delivered. And that is what is happening now that we were going to make sure that the money, the financing is delivered. The adaptation is on top of the agenda. Loss and damage is also coming up as a very important thing. Loss and damage means that, I mean, in some cases you are that, but then you still lose something, right? You lose and then it could be economic loss. It could be non-economic loss. How do we compensate? countries for that, right? So these are all conversations that are coming up. So this is how that conference looks like. In terms of the role of young people in this, I mean, young people are experts in different topics, so you have some of them as negotiators with their country. You have some of them who are advocates who come in. They are more knowledgeable about the topics, you know, because we have, we, we have, of course, we have adaptation and resilience, we have gender, we have capacity build, we have different topics. They are skilled in this topic, they come in and they offer that knowledge, and then they use that to advocate on how, what the country should negotiate on, or what they should propose as, as an action point. Right, so you have that. You have media coming in also to support, of course, with publicity and sort of getting the key messages up, but also the asking some tough questions and interviewing people and all of that. And 
in the context of young people going in either as media, either as delegates uh, or, or negotiators, either as advocates. Yeah, then you have the youth constituency of the Climate Change Secretariat, which is called Yongo. And what they do is officially being the youth vehicle at this event. That parliamentary. Exactly. So they, they bring sort of the channel, the youth engagement there. And there's a whole day, which we call the Youth and Future Generations Day, which is at this event, get young people there, really talking about what we have seen over the past year, what needs to be done moving forward, what are our demands, what are our asks, right? So, and I mean, on a personal level, I am really on the adaptation agenda, really working together with multiple young people in different networks, making sure that we are making the case for young people when it comes to adaptation. Because if we do not adapt now, right, it affects us now and it also affects our future. If a young person is not able to go to school now because the school building is flooded and is broken down, they are losing school days, right? There's no food malnutrition and we know the impacts of malnutrition on the brain development and everything. So at a young age, if these things are not fixed, you have a whole lifelong disadvantage ahead of you, right? So we want to make sure that this argument is strong. It is there. They are aware of it. We advocate for it. And we want to see that breakthrough at COP26. Adaptation and resilience, getting there enough attention and finance that is needed. On a concluding and also philosophical note, do you think that, obviously you don't, but there is a viewpoint that there is an over-exaggeration of the climate issue and climate um, change and adaptation and resilience is all part of a growing wokeism culture. What do you have to say about that? No, I think it's just, um, I mean, I mean, look, if you tell me about why, why doing something that I have no idea about is important, I don't get it, right? So I think the people who have this argument, they do not really understand the core of it. They do not understand the core of the issue, right? If you talk to, and I always tell when I meet people who really deny, I mean, I was, when I was coming to Ghana, I was in a flight here. And then the one of the air hostess picked a conversation with me and she asked me she asked me what I do. I said, Oh, I work on climate and adaptation. Oh really? Is that thing really a thing? It's and I was like, I mean, ask that young guy, right? That uh, a pastoralist who is in Ethiopia, who have to walk whatever kilometers with a cattle to find food and water. Right? Talk to the young people in Mozambique. What has changed? Right? Talk to the young people in Mozambique who have suffered from cyclones over cyclones over cyclones because of climate change. The intensity is changing, right? Talk to the young person in, in Congo, right? Or in Sudan, who, who experienced a century west flat, right? These things are not normal. If you live in your bubble, right? Live in a very safe space and you think there's another problem, that's okay. But talk to our farmers, right? Who are really paying attention over the past few years and they'll tell you what have changed, right? They'll tell you how that is affecting their income, how that's affecting their livelihood. Right. Tell, talk to the person who sit on the street and sell every day and they tell you how the heat is increasing. So if you live in your safe space and you think this is not a problem, that is okay. Right. Go ahead with that thinking. The day that you leave that bubble and you are faced with the reality, right, you realize that we're talking about something very, very important. Right. I mean, if you live in, in a big city, you have everything you have, you know, you live in the air condition, you live in a big house, you have no, you know, you, you don't have the same problem, right? There's flooding. You think it's the state's responsibility. You think it's something else. But pay attention, listen to the data, listen to the science, and then you realize that we have a big problem ahead of us, right? If you go to far, far east of Ghana on the coast, right? You've got a Dakota area. Now, this is crazy. We're getting communities getting into the ocean, right? The lands are taken by the ocean from coastal erosion, right? This is important. 
right? Sea level rise is going to catch up with us. Temperature rise is catching up with us. If you say this is not a problem, well, go live there. And then you realize that, okay, you have to find a way to live somewhere else every six years because the ocean just comes and takes over. So this is the reality. I think people who have these arguments, they are just living in a very safe space. Of course, business as usual is good because you get to pollute more and make more money. So that is great for anyone to think that way. But I think we need to look at it from a global perspective. People need help, right? And we cannot give, keep doing development work if climate change is going to wipe everything away. So we need to look at it from that perspective. If those people have problem with development work, then they are on a different level. But if development work is okay, but you think climate change is not okay, that is a problem. Because if you invest in development work, climate change will just reverse everything. So we need people to understand, but that also means that we need people to be educated so that they understand the science behind it, they understand the data, but also they get exposure to the problem so they see what it really means. Yeah. So I've been speaking to Joshua Amponson, who is the founder of Gaio. In Gaio is an organization that is into helping youth get into the climate conversation and towards um, climate resilience, climate adaptation, and it has been a pleasant conversation. Joshua, if someone wants to get in touch with Gaio, how do they do that? Now, if you want to get in touch with Gaio, you can just uh, Google Green Africa Youth Organization or just go to www.greenafricayouth.com uh, and on social media, we always use at Gaio Ghana and you'll be able to find us. Um, yeah, and really to be our pleasure to get in touch with as many people as possible and work with many young people as possible. So really looking forward. Yeah, so again, Joshua is creating a Green Africa and this has been the Change Africa podcast brought to you by Isaac Kujudinabwa. So till next time, have a blessed day.